0: Welcome to Persisters, an all-female live show and podcast hosted by Beth Rowe and produced by Alex Kern. Each week, we'll play you a piece from our live show followed by an interview between the performer and us, Beth and Alex. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on Instagram at PersistersLA.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you. The first thing I noticed as I came to was that I was freezing. It felt as if I were in a fucking meat locker. I opened my eyes, and with slow dawning clarity, I recognized that I was in a cell. You see, it wasn't my first time. I tried to move, and that's when I realized I was in quite a lot of pain. Still wearing my very skimpy outfit that I had gone out in the night, in the night before, I could see scrapes and bruises all over my legs and arms. My head was throbbing, and upon touching it, I could feel a bandage on my forehead. What the fuck had happened? I searched my very cloudy mind and had flashes of memory, hiding the lipsticks in my purse, paying for a few other items just to look like I was a respectable customer, feeling very clever about it. And then cops in the parking lot, me screaming like a lunatic. And oh my god, did I actually punch one of them? Being thrown onto the ground violently, more screaming an ambulance. And then that was it, complete blackness. No memory or idea of how I got from there to here to this fucking freezing cell. I managed to stand up and bang on the door. When an officer finally came, I asked if I could make a phone call. I called the only person I knew who was still speaking to me and who wasn't a drug dealer or an addict. When my friend Brett answered, I sobbed into the phone and I begged him to please go check on my dog and to please, please, please come bail me out. He said he would. And thinking I would be going home soon, I went back to my cell and passed back out. You see, I had been on a binge for three, maybe four days by that time. I hadn't slept or eaten. So I was basically in the very early stages of detox and couldn't barely or I could barely keep my eyes open. I was just completely sick. When I woke up again, it felt like days had passed. No one would tell me what was going on, so I begged to use the phone again. And when I called Brett and asked why he hadn't come for me, I found out that I wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. Well, not home, anyway. I was in trouble, a lot of trouble. Like I said, it wasn't my first time in jail. I had been a daily user of drugs and alcohol for about eight years at that point. And I you know, wasn't making the best decisions. I wasn't making the best choices. I had basically run out of chances. And attacking a cop while completely out of my mind on ecstasy, meth, and booze after shoplifting, well, that's pretty much a game over situation. The journey from there to county jails seemed to take forever. I really have no idea how many days passed. What I do know was that I was deeply terrified, very, very sick, and would have done just about anything for more clothes or shoes that weren't high platform heels or at the very least a fucking bra. There were so many hours in so many different cells with so, sometimes as many as 30 women. There were many bag lunches with pimento loaf or bologna and a small carton of milk. Mostly, I just slept as much as I could since I was at that point in full-blown detox, sharing steel slats they have as beds with two other women and using my shoes as a pillow. When I finally arrived there, it was with a combination of relief and horror. There was the delousing, whereupon they throw this disgusting powder all over you and then hose you down with something that resembles a fire hose and ice-cold water. It's unbelievably painful. And then there is the cavity search. It is a shame and humiliation that is difficult to express. Incomprehensible demoralization. And then I was taken to my cell. Now, nothing about this felt lucky at the time, but in so many ways, I really was. For example, I was placed in medium security, uh, which means I was in a cell with another person, and at night they would lock us in. Sounds horrible, I know, but it really was the safest place to be. In gen pop, or a general population for those of you that don't know the cool jail lingo, there were assaults all the time. Women were raped, tortured, and attacked physically at least once, twice, three times a week by other women. There was also the night that some were assaulted with feces. The entire jail was constantly on lockdown because of what was going on in Gen Pop. My first cellmate was actually very nice. She was there on a drug charge, and she was the first person who ever told me about AA and the big book. She even shared her commissary with me, as I literally had nothing except the welcome bag they give you when you arrive with some basic toiletries and a couple of pencils. My second was also a really wonderful person. She was there for a DUI, and it was her fourth, so she was going to prison. She was going to go for five years, and she had just had a baby girl just a few months before. We became close friends, and she helped me find some hope and light on my darkest days. I kept to myself for the most part, except especially in those very beginning days, those first days. I'd only venture out of my cell to use the phone and to eat. I was desperately trying to get out, to go home to my dog, but to no avail. It was going to be a while. So I began trying to find some way to survive, to maybe get myself together while I was there. It was completely clear to me that I needed to get my shit figured out, that I had been on a path that had slammed me full speed right into a brick wall. I read all the time, I think. My total came to about 53 novels, or sorry, 23 novels. I wrote, poetry mostly. I started asking for math books from the library and started doing the tests at the end of every chapter. I didn't even like math before that, but I found it a great tool to keep my mind focused on something other than the despair and overwhelming fear that I could literally feel emanating off of my body. It was like a relentless buzzing around me all the time. I got all the way to, to advanced algebra. I started exercising, it helped a lot. And there was this window at the top of our cell, really just a long strip, about four feet long and maybe six inches wide. And I would climb up on the top bunk and I would watch the sunset every evening out of it. I would focus on the, on the beauty past the high fence and the razor wire, and I would pray for forgiveness, for ruining my life, and for hurting all the people that I love, my dog, for hurting him, for freedom. And I would also pray even stronger for my dog, Kirov, because I was so scared something was going to happen to him while I was in there. He was my soulmate, and he was really all I had in this whole world. He was the only thing that I had to live for. And he kept me alive, and he kept love alive in me. And he didn't do well without me. He could be really, really aggressive when he was afraid or angry. And since he was a 76-pound husky, this might be more than my friend could handle. So I worried about him every single minute I was there. A few weeks in, I had begun to make some other friends, mostly women that were there for drug or alcohol charges. There was one there that um, was in jail because she wouldn't testify against her brother, who had been involved in a gangland murder. She hadn't even committed a crime. There were the two senoras in the cell next to mine. They spoke very, very little English, but they loved to hear me sing, so they always lent me their Walkmans. Some of the guards there were absolutely terrible human beings. One in particular loved to pat me down or really feel me up on her daily cell checks. She frequently made me lift up my shirt and my sports bra so she could check for contraband, which of course I never ever had. They blew freezing air on us day and night, even though it was November and December and it was really, really cold. When we would attempt to block our air vents, To make it bearable, they would come and like tear down whatever we had put up. And I swear they would make it even colder, turn on the air conditioner even higher. Sheriff Joe Arpaio was a big fan of torture. And blowing cold air on his inmates was one of his favorites. And all of them ignored my repeated requests to see the doctor when I ended up sick. In fact, it wasn't until I had a fever of 104 and, had blood coming out of my throat and couldn't speak or eat or drink that they finally took me. And even then, it was because one of the senoras next door had insisted and had made a big, huge fuss about the whole thing. Turns out, I had severe strep throat. While I was recovering, many of those women in the cell block came to see me, and they snuck me their blankets so I could stay warm enough. They brought me treats from their commissary. They just kept me company. They were immensely kind to me. And not one single one of them wanted anything from me. They did it truly out of the goodness of their hearts. And in a place like jail, it is completely unexpected. It was profoundly beautiful in a way that changed me forever. I later found out that one of those women Uh, one of the senoras, was on the FBI's most wanted list for a litany of crimes. And her cellmate was accused of murder, though I'm pretty sure it was self-defense. To me, though, they had just been nothing short of guardian angels. I spent Thanksgiving there and was shocked when my grandma and grandpa came to visit me the next day. To see my elderly grandparents in that place and for them to have to see me there was one of the most humbling and heartbreaking experiences I have ever had. I promised them I would do better. I promised them I would get my life together and keep it that way. I explained to them that I really, really understood now about my actions and about consequences. I swore I wouldn't drink or drug anymore. And when I stood before the judge after being incarcerated for 53 days, I swore the same thing. And I meant it. I really, really did. That time had been the longest I had gone without drinking or using since I was 11 years old. I even said no for the first time when I was in there, when somebody offered me speed. I learned that I could be good. I had gotten well, or so I believed. I was sent home with some very stern and frightening warnings about what would happen if I messed up again. I picked up my dog and vowed never to leave him or put him in danger. Never again. Not ever. On the fifth day out, I picked up a drink. On the sixth came the drugs. Promises and vows don't do much in the face of true alcoholism and addiction no matter how much you mean them, or how desperately you want them to be true. It took me a very, very long time to understand that. So while this particular experience wasn't the bottom I needed to get clean and sober, it definitely put me on the path to that direction or in that direction. I've been thinking a lot about how I still live in many ways, as though I am not free. I keep myself small and oftentimes hide away from life from being fully alive and embracing all that it means, to truly live with more joy, and faith, courage, and strength. I stay stuck in certain stories and habits, fears, that just don't serve me anymore. I often wonder why. Maybe it's because I still don't completely believe that I deserve it, this beautiful freedom. I don't know. But I think what I can do is remember every day how fortunate I am and how grateful I am for my life and all that I have experienced and survived. And to be proud that today I am someone who is responsible and dependable and trustworthy. And remember that I can be someone who is kind to others just because, just as others have been so tremendously kind to me. It's been over 20 years since my time in jail, but I do think about it often. Not just as a part of my story of how I came to be clean and sober these last 12 and a half years, but also I think about those women and their stories, and I wonder what happened to them. I did try to stay in touch with a couple, but it didn't last very long, unfortunately. They will always be with me, though, as will my absolute clarity and understanding that punching a cop
2: is a very
0: very bad idea. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Persisters. Persisters. Hello. I'm Beth Rowe. I'm Alex Kern. And we're here today with the lovely Lisa Contreras. Hello everybody. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you for asking. You're thank well, you for having me. Of course. Thank of you course.
1: for doing our show. Throat.
2: Contreras.
1: is that Italian? It what is, is not. It what is, is it? Uh, Hispanic. Oh wow my father's side of the family Hispanic, oh, wow. so it's a Hispanic last name.
2: Oh okay, cool.
1: It's, I guess yeah. Spain and Italy are neighbors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, they're close it's, by it's, Do you speak Spanish? I absolutely do not. <gasps> okay. I can like cuss and I can count to ten. How do you cuss in, in uh sp- I just know some words that I probably shouldn't know that the the like, Spanish-speaking work staff at the restaurant, uh, <laughs> they think it's hilarious when I say it. But I just know some bad words that I'm not supposed to know. And then I can say, like, basic greetings. And other than that, I can't speak a lick of Spanish. Yeah. So my father's side. He's no longer with us. My, his brother, my uncle, is still alive. And then I have some half-siblings that are... Um, Where do
0: your half-siblings
1: live? Arizona. Uh, my one half-sister is in Arizona. One half-sister is in Oklahoma. And my half-brother is in Colorado. Oh, okay. And you grew up in Arizona. I did. Okay. Not with them, though. I had already moved out of the house. The only uh, half-sibling I lived with briefly was my sister, Ashley, until she was like a couple of years old, maybe three. And then I went to college. So I didn't really live with them as a family. Where did you go to school again? High school? Uh, College. Arizona State. Arizona State. Okay. For
0: some reason, I, I hear
2: that's a fun school. I had a lot of fun. Like uh, the funnest,
1: right? I mean, I feel like I did more college. fun stuff than finishing college. Right. So I would say, yeah. <laughs> I got a master's degree in partying at Arizona State, so but funny. I didn't get an
0: actual degree at Arizona State. <laughs> and then from Arizona, you moved to? Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Oh, and then wow. from Las Vegas, you moved to? New York City. New York City. Oh, wow. You were in How New York. Long- you were in Vegas for like. A while. A couple of years.
1: And then you were in New York for a while. I was in New York for a decade. Where in New York did you live? So the first few years, I was in the East Village on 10th between B and C, right by Tompkins Square Park. Oh, yes. And then briefly, more like uh, around Gramercy area, just very briefly with a boyfriend with whom I lived. And then that did not work out. I moved to Brooklyn. I lived in Windsor Terrace, Brooklyn for the last half of the decade that I was in New York. Did you love
0: living in Brooklyn?
1: I loved living across the street from Prospect Park. Right. Um I liked it very much. I did not love living in Brooklyn because I had to have roommates. And that mm, wasn't super right. fun you to me. You didn't have
0: roommates when you were in Manhattan.
1: I no, other than the boyfriend, I did not. So the first few years I was on my own. I had a really great little deal on a an apartment my friend's family Owned the building. That's amazing. They gave me a good deal. Um, I probably took more advantage of that than I should have because I wasn't the healthiest person at that time. Then I lived with a boyfriend, and then I had to move to Brooklyn and live with t- not one but two roommates, mm-hmm. which was not really my jam. Yeah. yeah, it's hard as a grown person to live. Yeah, with I people. was
2: yeah. my. I was in Brooklyn for a few years, and I got lucky. I mean, after that, when I moved to LA, and I was like, gotta live alone, but. I had lived in really close quarters in Manhattan. And then when I lived in Brooklyn, we had like a house, which was kind mm. of amazing. Um that is amazing. And my roommates were great. Like I was close friends with one of them. And then the other one, they were the third was always like kind of changing. But yeah, it was same. nice because they weren't friends originally. And then we kind of like created this really nice relationship where we would have parties and dinners together. Mm. But it's a hard thing to find not fun having roommates
1: it's not it's not really my thing I'm an only child for the most part I like having my space I'm very like I just like having like be able to be who I am at home and not have to worry about other people or sure caring mm-hmm. about other people's feelings the thing I will say I loved about living in Brooklyn since I was across the street from the park when the weather was nice I could ride my bike which mm. helped me like just help me be outside and it helped me to move like, go fast, and I would ride my bike for hours around that park. So, that was the thing that probably saved me and allowed me to stay in New York longer was like mm-hmm. getting on my bike during like the spring and summer and just mm-hmm. taking Prospect Park by storm. Like I around, love that and park. around and around and School around and around. Yeah. yeah. So, I loved that. So, I was able to get away a little bit. That's cool. Which I could not do in Manhattan. And then you moved to LA after and that. Then I moved to LA. Okay, cool. How long have you been in LA? I have now been here. What is this? It's October. So I moved here in February of 2012. So just over six and a half years. Okay. A long wow. time. Yeah. It's gone really fast. It, creep, it creeps LA up creeps up. LA goes by fast. It I've really been here for three and a half
0: years, and I still am like, I just moved here. Wait, what? I know. You know it's wild. I moved here nine years ago. What? That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I did go back to New York. I went back to New York for half of a year, and I make it sound like I was gone for three. You do. You're
2: like, <laughs> I lived in New York. I'm like, you lived for a summer. But I went to college <laughs> in New York. I know, but not the city. I
0: lived in the city in the summers. But I didn't do, like, I wasn't like... There was like, an eye n- roll. There <laughs> was yeah, a yeah, eye n- roll in the cities. <laughs>
2: yeah. But it's okay, Beth. You can I continue still, telling why, that that's story. That's why, like,
0: I, I can't get it. <laughs> but that's why I can't get it out of my system yet. That's why I still mm. want to oh. move back, because I'm still, like... I want to move back with ooh. money. Well, That's yeah. really
1: the only way to
2: live there. Yeah, Once that's the you, only way to live there. Yeah. Get out of your 20s. It's like, oh, God.
0: My dogs are the perfect size for it.
1: I mean, Do you, know you I mean? have to get it out of your system. New York is 100% out of my system. Like, I need to go visit, which I'm doing next week, as a matter oh, of fact. Oh, nice. And get a dose of it. Lisa's com- leaving for New York the day that I come back. Oh, really? Yeah. We're like in a cross in the air. Maybe cross in the air. I don't know. we oh, okay you uh when you were your
0: story takes place when you were living in new york is that no, no
1: my story takes place in arizona oh i didn't this know was long that. before well not long it was a few years before i moved to new york oh mm-hmm. no it was an arizona thing oh okay post-college I mean, I didn't finish college, per se. I was okay. definitely not in college at that time. I was really entrenched in my... my. I was very entrenched in a party scene. Right. Like, all I did pretty much day and night was drink and do drugs. Mostly do drugs. Wow. Yeah. So that, yeah, there was no school involved with that at that time. I had actually... Pretty much failed out of school in the beginning because I couldn't, I kind of came unraveled Mm -hmm. when I got to college. I wasn't, mm, I just wasn't emotionally healthy. Sure. Had a lot of stuff that I carried into college um, from high school and from when I was young, and it just, I came unraveled. And the thing that ended up kind of saving me in a weird way was finding that party life, like drugs and alcohol for a period of time saved me. They kind of helped me not be depressed and not be suicidal until they, you know, until they didn't work anymore. But Mm -hmm, yeah, no, that story, I was just kind of, I was just kind of getting started in a lot of ways, like really in the scene of, of drinking and using. Wow. So that's how you were
0: younger when this happened
1: ish. I mean, no, I mean, I can't say that I was, young. I mean, I, I would like to say I was really young, but no, I think, so it happened, no, I was in my late 20s. That's still, I think, like... I mean, relatively young. Yeah. I, you know, but um, yeah, no, it happened, yeah, like my late 20s, when it all kind of fell apart. I mean, I had been getting in trouble consistently Yeah, for the, a few years prior, and then that was kind of the tipping point right. in a lot of ways after that you moved to new york no after that i stayed in arizona a little bit longer las vegas and las then i moved vegas. to vegas got it i feel like we need a timeline we we do need a timeline creating um that. the story <laughs> took place the story that i you could use dates that would be great now i'm going to use a year um i think it was the end of 1996 that that story took place yeah Wow, and then um, I dealt with the repercussions of that and all that I had to do afterwards for a couple of years. And I actually got briefly for like three years clean and sober the first time wow. because of that event, right? Um, which was a good thing. I mean, I was really a mess. Um, I was ended up having to go to like a treatment place. It was like this halfway house treatment place called Alice's Wonderland, if you can believe that, hmm. um, yeah, that in Mesa, like, Arizona. Wants
0: to, I'd, rather, I'd much rather go do drugs there than get over to <laughs> I mean, Alice's.
1: I'm not going to lie. I ended up doing some drugs there. Um, I tripped on acid at one point there. How would you get them
2: when you were at these treatment centers?
1: I mean, it was uh, It was an outpouring. I mean, I lived there. I had to stay there. But you, you can get drugs anywhere. Right. It's not like you can get drugs anywhere <laughs> if you want them. Um, and, um, yeah, I did a couple of different things there. Um, I tripped on acid and ended up having a really intense experience because my roommate, um, overdosed on heroin the same night and I came home and found her as I was, I had gone to, um, meet with some recovery people and, a boyfriend that I had who was also in treatment or like at a halfway house and I was tripping on acid nobody knew about it except me and the guy who had given me the acid that come to visit me and um, then I came back home or to the halfway house where I was living at that time the treatment halfway house Alice's Wonderland and my roommate had overdosed on heroin and I had to get myself together enough to call an ambulance and figure out like what to do because nobody was really, it was really, really scary. And it was one of the most intense experiences of my life because I was on acid. Um, Whoa. So I wrote about it very clearly. I have a journal and I wrote it out because I wanted to remember the whole thing. Like I had to watch them revive her, the whole thing, like the whole thing. Oh my God. On a, a very strong hallucinogenic. And, which was fine. I tripped a lot. Like, I could handle that, but it was a lot. And I had vowed, oh, I'm never going to do that. Like, I will never do that drug. Like, that's terrifying. I will never do that. And, of course, that doesn't, that's not how it works. I eventually did do it. Just not that day or that
2: year, but. Because it's a curiosity, right? You try one thing, then you get, like, a little bit more bold, and then you're like, oh, I could just.
1: I mean, curiosity, yes, but also addiction just works that way. I mean, I was always gonna do it. You know what I mean? Like somebody see scaring being scared isn't enough when you have like real addiction and real alcoholism. Being scared of it or seeing something that's scary about it isn't enough to keep you from doing it. Maybe curiosity, it's also just kind of its own beast. Yeah. You know? Mm. A little bit of both. And your roommate was okay. She lived, and then the next day she came back to pack up her stuff. And she, I'll never forget this, ever, She, I went in to check on her while she was packing, and she swung her head around at me and glared at me and said, I don't know why you saved me, you should have let me die. Oh my god. Oh my god. It was really, um, it was really heartbreaking. (gasps) Did you ever, have you
0: ever heard from, no? So you? No, we
1: lost, I know she had gone back, she was originally from New Hampshire, she was a teacher. Um, I know that she went, she had struggled with addiction for years. Like she really struggled with it. And I honestly, after that, I'm not sure what happened to her. I think I tried to reach out at one point. And uh, I don't think I ever heard from her again. I don't, I really don't know what happened to her after that. Wow. I I can't imagine. I feel like. I don't know. There's no way to know. I just know she really, really struggled and had it to a degree that maybe she didn't recover.
0: I feel like you're you're very you're very open about your recovery and very confident. And I know I realize that takes a long that takes time, right? Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. it also like takes like you being in a really healthy place.
1: And I worked really, really I mean, where I got sober and clean I worked really 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 hard at it and it's very good recovery there in New York it was amazing and I have to this day a lot of the same people in my life from that time even though I've moved and it just I'm just one of those fortunate ones that for today and for these last you know 12 and a half years it's taken like it's you know what I mean my recovery is strong Mm -hmm. but I don't take it for granted and I definitely I think confident is I have faith in my recovery I don't know if yeah. it's confidence per se because I don't necessarily take credit for it um, I work hard you know and I stay very connected like spiritually and I and I do work but
2: what do you do to um, for that spiritually like meditation or writing
1: or yes All of that. I mean, I have a very personal and faithful and grateful relationship with a power greater than myself, like a higher power, Mm -hmm. which is important in any recovery, I think, regardless of what you believe spiritually, like you have to find what works for you. Mm -hmm. And I have that, you know, and then I have like amazing people in my life that when I'm a little off or I... Uh, afraid or feeling vulnerable. I can talk about it very openly and honestly and uh, feel supported, you know, and that that everything's going to be okay. Like, I don't have the need to drink or use. Like, I don't have any sort of compelling need or desire, and it has been that way for a really long time. I would say the first few years, it was not like that. There were many times it was so hard. Like, something would put me over the edge, and I would it would be so hard. I'd be in tears and I'd call like 15 people, like 15 women in my support group and be like really freaked out and scared. Yeah. And I haven't had that to that degree in a very long time, thankfully. So I'm very lucky in that respect because not everybody has it that way, you know? When you yeah.
0: talk about uh, a higher power and whatever that is, do you find that your higher power is more about like, like the universe as opposed to like there being like one holy
1: I guess you know I've gotten to a place with this I I don't know if what God is I, I use the term God because it's just easy Yeah, it's just an easy term for me and I don't get really caught up on the semantics of it some people do um, I definitely don't believe in the same God that I was taught about in, you know, Sunday school in a Baptist church when I was a little girl or the God they talk about in Catholic church. You know, I don't necessarily attach to those definitions mm-hmm. um, anymore. When I was young, I had a very judgy version of a God. And I felt like I was not a good person, so I was being punished if bad things happened to me. You were raised Catholic, right? Mm-mm. No? No, I was kind of allowed to go to different churches and find different ways. No, my, actually, I was raised Southern Baptist. My grandparents were Southern Baptist, but it was a really open-minded, weirdly, beautifully loving Southern Baptist church in northern Arizona. Um, But they allowed me to go to church with other friends, and my father had been Catholic, and then they turned Lutheran. Like, I went to a lot of different churches. My grandparents, who raised me, were great about letting me explore and find what worked for me. Mm -hmm. And what I've realized is that kind of has helped me piece together now, like, my beliefs. Like, and I don't believe in a cruel God that punishes or that only loves you if you are good, which is. What I believed up until probably maybe ten years ago, and that changed because of my recovery, like it really transformed like how I see a God or the universe or you know great spirit or source, whatever name we give it mm-hmm. I don't see it any longer as anything but loving right and good and you know true so i I my whole spirituality is transformed because of that. And I meditate and I definitely pray and I write things. Um, and, you know, I, I love to get to nature because that's where I feel most connected. Or even just, like, something simple like watching my kitty cat. You know, like, that for me is, like, godlike, you know. It's just mm-hmm. this beautiful, true experience yeah. that's unfettered by, like, small-minded human Frailties, I guess. I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's it sounds like it's, it's like a practice in being in the moment,
1: if that. In a way, yeah, and like believing that, believing that no matter what, like I'm gonna be okay, and that I'm loved, no matter what, and that the beauty that I find in nature or in my friendships, um, or in my recovery, like that is. That is, for me, what what God is, Hmm. you know? Um, I have a friend, a very dear friend in Arizona, who actually is a staunch, radical atheist. She is such an atheist. However, she runs a dog rescue, and she, more than I've ever heard of anyone, she will do anything on earth to save those dogs. She will go into yards. She will risk her own health. She Mm. has learned, like, how to take care of them physically. She has built this beautiful rescue. Like, she will run into a street and save a dog. Like, she will do anything. And I think that is very godlike. Like, Like Mm -hmm. that to me is like, she doesn't believe, like I said, radical atheist, but her work, what she does in this world without, what she does, just she gives of herself to save something else and care about somebody else. That, for me, is also...
2: Well, it's linked to purpose, right? It's kind of like if you can find your purpose, there's like a almost like otherworldly um, power to it
1: because it's yeah. like
2: we're, we're here and we have, there's a reason. I mean, life is meaningless, but if, if we can find in that like, something that we can share of ourselves and give back of ourselves that elevates just this meaninglessness of life, it's like, oh, okay, there's a reason for me to be here. Or something yes. that I can hold on to.
1: I feel like yes, for sure. I think sometimes, though, even just in the quiet stillness of life, like I don't necessarily think that sometimes, uh, sometimes you might not in uh, on any given day be con- straight on your purpose or sure, on your path sure. of purpose or passionate about your purpose. And I feel like you can still be in touch with a power greater than you. Like yeah. that can still be. And sometimes I think maybe we're all trying to do too much to like find it. Like, maybe it's just here. You can just sit still for a minute. I think that's what's great about meditation. Mm.
2: Yeah, I was just listening to um, Super Soul Sessions. Oprah. I love it. Yeah, yes. I just started. It's great. And it was Eckhart Tolle, or however mm-hmm. you pronounce his Eckhart name. Eckhart Tolle. Yeah, 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 um, which is the power of now. And he was talking about how you can even find in the
1: stillness, mm-hmm. God or your spiritual, just, like, a moment. I think that's where it really lives. Yeah. And when you're connected to something that... Um, is meaningful to you and you love, like that's why I use the example of like watching my kitty cat. Like it's, I'm not doing anything. I'm sitting on a couch or like on the bed or on the floor. And I just, this moment and it's just so quiet and still, and you can just, I can just feel joy. Mm -hmm. That's also like
0: you watching your cat in your apartment, in a city that's your own, is also, like, a huge accomplishment, I would say, like, with, like, with what you, like, have been through and how you've Mm -hmm. survived and how you can say, like, oh, this cat means that I can not only take care of myself, but I can take care of another thing. And we're just in this moment of, like, bliss and joy and just, like, love. And I think that, like, having that means so many other things. And that's also Mm -hmm. beautiful.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I agree with that because it wasn't always able to be that person yeah this person yeah for sure especially in my darker days I mean I've always had pets and you talk about your dog and your story I do um
0: my uh so Peter regularly tells me that my dogs are not my actual babies <laughs> but I call them my babies yeah. because Murray essentially rescued me from just being like it's not even like i, w- I wasn't a really irresponsible twenty-something-year-old in, in LA. Like I was always like, like moving and getting stuff done, but it—it it, the some the having something at home to like go but, like oh I can only be out for X amount of time, then I turn mm-hmm. into like a pumpkin. But really, it's just I have to like get back to take care of this mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. that's wanting me to be there, mm-hmm. and it's gonna just like force me to become a mature adult, and then I knew. I, I think it's because my dog's a little bit like cuckoo because he's a terrier <laughs> that I knew that I needed to be with somebody who also had a dog. Yeah. So they would understand. Yeah. And then it just happened. But yeah, like somebody that also wanted to just like be grounded in yeah. having that. Yeah. Are you saying you wouldn't have been with me because I don't have a dog? Correct.
1: Yeah. Clearly. <sighs> I mean, the good news is you're, a pr- I've I, remember when you adopted Murray and like it really like yeah but I and I told you I think I don't know if you'll remember this I told you your heart is going to change it's going to make your heart so big yeah um and it did like I've seen that happen for you and you know that has definitely happened for me I have to be honest and I am very honest about this um when I was drinking and using which was the greater part of my adult life I was not a good I was not a good mommy to my to my pets, and that is the source, quite frankly, of my greatest heartbreak and my greatest shame, mm-hmm. um, still. Mm-hmm. And um, I I hold it as almost a yardstick now, like it's always there, and I don't want it to not be there because I want to always be really clear on the person I become when I pick up a drink or when I pick up a drug, and the person I become is completely antithetical to who I really am. Who yeah. I really am mm-hmm. is a person that I will do anything in the world for, my, for my, now my kitty, Kaya. Everybody probably knows about Kaya. I talk about her all the time, and I wanted to be that for my dog that I spoke of in the story. His name is Kirov, and I had him for 11 and a half years, and quite frankly, almost his entire life, i was drinking and using there was that three-year period where i wasn't and those were our greatest times and he was the happiest but um those other years he really he he was my mom always says he was such a trooper he like took care of me and gave me something to live for but i was not i was not the caretaker or the mommy or the human being he deserved i was mm. not able to be no matter how hard i wanted to be i just yeah. that's the power of drugs and alcohol they take for me and people like me they take over your entire being and really it no matter how important other things are to you you can't show up i couldn't show up mm. and um and there's great suffering because of that you know the innocents in our lives suffer of course my family and friends suffered but my you know I can make amends to that for that it's you know you can't go back in time and give a dog a new life you know it, it's really like really a great source of pain for me still yeah so I think I almost I treasure Kaya and my relationship with her and being her, I call I'm I'm her mommy you know I take care of her and We take care of each other. But that is now one of the greatest sources of joy, like you said, because I know I'm a good mommy to her. I know I'm a good, dependable caretaker, giving her like a really healthy, happy, good life. Mm -hmm. I almost am like hyper vigilant about it Mm -hmm. because I feel like it's the only way I can make amends for Hmm. who I once was. How old is she? She just turned nine on the 16th oh, of October. Wow. Oh, nice. Happy
0: yeah. birthday,
1: Kaya. Kaya. <laughs> Ki Kaya. Kaya. I um
0: I don't mean to be real basic and bring up Jennifer Aniston right now, but I'm going to <laughs> because she is somebody that people always were like, when are you having a baby? When are you having a baby? When are you having a baby? Just because she's like America's sweetheart on TV. Yeah. And she was like, "What about all the humans that I already take care of, and what about all the animals that I provide for and yeah. take care of?" And it was to that
1: I when thought, "Did was, she say that
0: in In an interview, I like, think yeah. uh, I think it was like within the past three years, or and something. even before,
1: even at the end of with Brad, she had said that because Some everyone was, was really like pressuring her about she's that. She's like,
0: like, "I like I." She had like she's like a big dog person, and mm-hmm. like and like. I am like if you're a, if you're one of the friends actors, you like 100 percent provide financially for your families. 100 so like And probably many friends. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. I would hope so. Not just friends in the quote unquote sense, but right. like your your personal friends, not just the yeah. friends, friends. <laughs> Matthew Perry
0: gave me like a very like like an OK tip one time and I was just like, God, come on. And then one of my friends said to me, like, oh, just because he's rich, he has to pay you a more money. And I was like,
1: yeah. yes, <laughs> obviously, yeah, especially because they all worked in restaurants before they were friends. Totally, I yeah. think like all of them did in here in Los Angeles. Yeah. So, yeah, a little bump up in the
2: tip would be nice. I mean, that shows in syndication and, and, and will
0: be for eternity. Yeah. They, so they I made mean, more money today off friends than I've made my entire life.
1: Yeah. today they're making more like right now just the residual while term. we're yeah, having this podcast they're making more money on friends than we've made it oh yeah The if three you of us in our whole
0: a million dollars next year what would you do with it
1: i would pay off my enormous debt great i would help my parents great mm. and i would go on a really awesome trip somewhere maybe mm. tahiti Ooh, I'm oh, going go to go to Tahiti. I would yeah. put some in savings. I'm not completely irresponsible. And I would, you know, maybe get like a, put a down payment on an apartment or a house or something cute like that. And I would mm. definitely quit my restaurant job. Good for you. Yeah. And just act and write and sing full time.
0: Creatively, what was, what's been your most fulfilling thing that you've done Besides
1: being on our show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, the two times that I've done Persisters has been amazingly, beautifully, creatively fulfilling for me. Oh, that's so great. So, so cool. I thank you for having me. I mean, both times I've been able to really write from the heart. Yeah. And you, Beth, especially, as a friend, you've encouraged me so much and given me faith in my ability. It's helped shift, you know, my perspective on going forth with everything else giving me more confidence sure mm-hmm. um, I mean and other than that creatively fulfilling the most th- in those last few years I will say I've done you know I've done more commercially and some really great films in these last years that I hadn't expected I'm still um, kind of finding my way though yeah I really feel like I'm still kind of still finding my way yeah in a lot of ways, um, I think just taking the actions, creating a career, even if right now it's still a little bit of a small potatoes scenario. Like you know, I have done stuff. I do have an agent. Yeah. You know, I I'm working on it. I've had some shows, so oh, yeah. I, I feel was like that's helping. Something
0: it. today about um, what was the 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 showrunner of Crazy Ex Girlfriend? Alan, mm. I forget her last name. Um but she Alan, a girl? Yeah.
2: Huh. I don't, um, know, I don't know. She
0: she um, she's a writer and a director and a showrunner for Crazy Ex Girlfriend and she was she said something like I didn't get my first directing job until I was forty seven because I kept asking. It was like Nancy Myers didn't direct her first movie by herself until she was forty nine and um there was another one. I also don't think Vera Wang started her own company until she yeah, was I in think her I like read like that late too. 40s. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, so that's, or what was it the 70? Oh, it was, I, I've, yeah, it's another woman, like, that's, like, like another artist that didn't start becoming successful until she was in her 70s or something. Yeah. And it's just like, I love. Everyone's on their own path. Yeah. yeah and I love, and I, w- I think that's also because before you got here, Alex and I were talking about how like, Yesterday, we both, like, without even speaking to each other, had really low self-esteem days about, Mm -hmm. like, where we were, and I think I talked to you about that Mm -hmm. yesterday, and and I just kind of felt like I I got, like, kicked, and I set myself up for it, Mm -hmm. and then we're like, oh, we should have done this when we were
1: in our 20s, we should have done that, we should have done that, and it's like, well, we didn't, and so what are we going to do now? Right. Mm-hmm. I feel this, I often feel the same way. And actually, Beth, once you said something to me that was really beautifully helpful, and you probably won't remember this, but I had said something to the degree of, um, you know, something about I was coming up on a birthday, and I was feeling weird about it, and I felt like I hadn't really done anything yet. And when I said that, you looked at me, and you said, Lisa, some would argue that you've done more in your life than most people. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. And, and when I can hear that, like, really take it in, it gives me perspective. Because, no, I didn't go to, like, drama school or performing arts school or start acting when I was younger. And I started to sing and pursue that. And then I started using and blew, I blew my chances with that, which I beat myself up a lot about. But I did have, like, a life with real tragedy and real triumphs and real... You know, I really had to like live and come to another side of being alive, and and as an artist, I feel like that gives me a voice today. Oh, for sure, hundred percent, hundred percent gives me a voice, and and when I'm able to see that and like really understand that, I can move forward really like purposefully and joyfully. It's when I get in my little, like, my little beliefs and my small-minded comparisons with people, or, you know, I see these people on Facebook or Instagram that are, like, doing so great, and I'm like, well, here I am, going to my restaurant job today, like, you know what I mean? Jerry
0: Katzman just posted something on Facebook. It's this lovely man, um, and he, uh, and he, it was like, this is what... Youth, the, their success oh. and their depression, it's, like, all these famous people. I think I've people. seen it. I yeah. think I've seen it, too. That, like, yeah. have struggled with, like, severe depression, but it looks like they're at, like, yeah. the height of mm-hmm. their lives and success, and it's, like, they were so sad.
1: Yeah. I mean, what are they? are I saw somebody else post the other day. Not like, that I'm nobody... wanting
0: people that are successful to be sad.
1: <laughs> no, but it makes sense. Like, we don't know what people go through privately. Like, we all have our stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I really strive not to compare myself. Um, in recovery, we call it... In Recovery, rather, we call it. Don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. Like, yes, it that's will essentially mm, what it was saying. Yeah, yeah. it will. Mm, it will like first of all, you're never going to stand up to that because what I view, you know, what I see on Instagram or my, you know, acquaintances that are doing really well or whatever, even like stars. If you start doing that, it's like, look at that. They, they don't suffer and they're doing great. And I suck. You know, when I get in that, I'm first of all of use to no one on earth and it's not true it's just like it doesn't serve anything so I've been really um practicing not getting on social media as much Mm. for that reason as well as for political reasons because I just I do get depressed then um and if I catch myself because I'll get jealous like even a very good friends like really good friends that I love and who love me and I'll see them post something about one of their successes and uh, I want to celebrate my friends' successes and if I'm in person with them and they're telling me of course I do but if I see it on Instagram and I'm in one of my grumpy moods at home sure like, and I get really jealous and I don't like the way that feels yeah, um, yeah social media man it's a killer
2: it's a killer yeah. yeah you have to be really careful I have to be very careful I have to be that's why uh,
0: sometimes I go on and I just like everything I see just because I'm like <laughs> not because I'm trying to be like a whatever <laughs> I think it's because I'm just trying, to like, okay, somebody took time out of their day to yeah. post this picture of pumpkin pie with a spoon <laughs> in it, and that, like, and it's cute, and like, you know yeah, what? I agree with that. I see you.
1: Yeah, and you're enjoying a moment. I enjoy but the pumpkin pie posts. I mean, for the most part, maybe I'm not huge into food posts, but for the most part, sure. Why not? I'd yeah. rather see that than any more stuff. I'm so tired of seeing negative political stuff that makes me crazy and makes me really depressed. Like that will. Shut me down, and yeah. then I get, and then I'll like after that see like three things of people that I know that are like working on a set or do just booked a commercial or going on tour with a theater company, whatever. Sure. And then when I'm already in that mindset, I'm just like, yeah, grrr, I don't even care. You. Yeah, and then I get really angry. and I wish we didn't and, need it, social media. Yeah, We yeah. wish.
2: It can be a tool. Absolutely, one hundred percent. We just have to like like, discipline ourselves. Yeah. How do you figure out? I often will just erase it. I just
1: delete it, and Um, then I'm like, oh, but I need. That's very brave. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but then I download
1: it like two days later. (laughs) I just make myself put it down, and you know, interestingly, you know who's really good about helping with that is Kaya Kitty. She does not like me in the phone. So if I'm like, if I have the phone up, she will jump up and like meow, yell at me. That's great. She is not a fan. Like she, uh, she'll like, sometimes I'll be like, fall into the wormhole of Facebook sure. or whatever. And I'll be there and I'll like, just yeah. feel something and I'll look up and she's just there like in front of me. And she's just staring at me with this face. It's not cute. It's very like, put your phone down yeah. now. Like she she's like very stern. She doesn't like it at yeah. all. She's so going to be here with me. Yeah, Pizza. look at me. Meow. Meow meow. <laughs> and she'll meow. And she does like her tone of meow is very stern when I have the phone call so back. Like, okay, okay, okay. And I will turn it off and I will put it far away from me and then all is well. She snuggles. Hmm. That's so funny. smart little kitty. It's a good kitty you got. It's really a good
2: kitty. Yeah. Lisa. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank thank you for this being was awesome.
1: Thank
0: you. This yeah. was so fun. It was so fun. And thank you for being so vulnerable. Yes.
1: Thank you for loving me. Keep sharing your story yeah. because yeah, when I'm
2: you beautiful. did at our show, I was so moved.
0: Aww, yeah.
1: Thank you. That means a lot to me. Do it I really does.
0: Says. Yeah. It's really beautiful.